The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. The following program is closed captioned for the thinking impaired. By tomorrow, I will rule the world! <laughs> He's gone. He's not gone. Just waiting for the internet to catch up with me. Oh, we're up. We're live. How about that? Could a show going and everything. Who knew? As soon as the internet catches up and I can post this, we're good. Man, this is just so slow. I always feel bad when we do a long open like this when I'm trying to get something done. But the listeners that email me say that they like it. They so love it. Sure. They do, yeah. I just to let you know, Melvin Taylor wrote this song for the show, which is great. Yeah, it is. Cool. When we first started the podcast, we actually got knocked off. They said we're using copyright material. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> he wrote this song for the show. He put it on an album afterwards. We have full permission to use it. Stop knocking us off. Yeah, please. Alright, in like 30 more seconds we should be good You guys are going to love my guest today You're going to love my guest <laughs> It's just doing what it wants to do I guess we just start the show And I'll try and get it over afterwards Oh my god, it's just awful Let's try it this way you can always trick Facebook when it doesn't want to do something. You can always trick it into doing it. Good for you. It just takes a, it just takes a, a few minutes and a little creativity. Still in Facebook jail, by the way, folks. I can post, but I can't go live on my page. So what we're doing is we're trying to post. We're going to be doing the show on the Valley Patriot Facebook page from now on. And then just try and share it on all the other pages. So I'm going to encourage people to share the show throughout appreciate that if you could do that you're also always free to watch the show on the united podcast network facebook page or the studio 21 podcast cafe facebook page and we also have a youtube page which nobody ever goes to we've got like one view on each show (laughs) over on youtube Like five thousand on Facebook, six thousand on Spreaker and Podbean, and I go over to YouTube and it says three. I'm like, how does that happen? <laughs> All right, hey, how you guys doing? My name's Tom Duggan here with the Paying Attention Podcast. Hi, atop two guys smoke shop at the Studio Twenty One Podcast Cafe. We have a great show for you today. It is um, it is Black History Month, February. February's now Black History. This is yeah, January. It's February. But it was it was now. Why don't why did they? Do Black History Month in February if Martin Luther King's birthday is in January? He didn't make January. Well, January was no made no impression on Dr. King, so he was born that month. Right. So we're right. celebrating his birthday actually in right. January and right. Black History then. But why would February then be Black History Month? You think that they would just know? It's quite hard. I think you guys got screwed. I think it's because February is the shortest <laughs> month. I think they were short shifting you guys. I'm going to start making a case for that. Okay. 
<laughs> very good. See how much trouble. I still can't get this posted. So uh, everybody, please share it if you could post it. Post it on the uh, on my personal page. That would be great. So I can share it out. Here it is. Finally, you know, whenever like you're looking for something, you can look for something for an hour. The minute you say out loud, I can't find my pen. There it is. Right. It's 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 the see. It's like the universe conspires against you. The minute I said that, boom, it went right to my page. So we've got a great show for you today. I want to talk about some local uh, political stuff first before we get to my guest. My guest today is Richard Lawrence, and I want to say I want to say it the right way. It's Richard Lawrence. It's the way he says it. Um, now, some of you might be looking at this guy next to me, going, hey, "He looks really familiar." He should. He th- first of all, this guy is he's a legend. And I don't think most people from the Merrimack Valley that that knew Richard when he was a Lawrence City Councilor know what a legend he is. Um, But we've been friends for an awful long time, going back to when he was running for City Council. Um, and, uh, And he wrote a book recently... And I attended one of his little talks that he gives. Like when you write a book, you always go and give a talk. I did that a couple times with my book. Um, and I sat in the audience in, in, in just in awe of what he was talking about and thought, you know, at some point we've got to get Richard on the show. And we tried to get him a few times, but he's living in California and he's living like the high life out in California. Oh, and, he's yeah. like, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, Tom, I'm coming back there to do a show. But he moved back, I, I learned recently. And we've been talking on the phone a little bit about going out for coffee and chatting. And I thought, hey, this would be a great time to get Richard on the show to talk about his book. I talk about Black History Month, Martin Luther King, and a bunch of other stuff. So we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, uh, let's see. Let's make sure we can uh, uh, podcast this. So we've got a couple of things in the news. I don't know if you watched the Methuen City Council this meeting this week. It was Tuesday because of the holiday. Um, very interesting meeting, um, I thought. Uh, Mayor Perry had two nominees up for appointment. Um, he ha- he was filling the veteran services officer position. He also was filling the city solicitor, assistant city solicitor positions position. And it looked like at the beginning of the meeting that he was not going to have the votes for either one of these two spots. And there was a concerted, coordinated effort among at least one city council that I know to get veterans in the community to write nasty letters about the veteran that was up for this job. I had never seen this before in my life where veterans will publicly disparage another veteran. And yet last night, or Tuesday night, to me it's last night because I didn't go to bed. Um, last night, uh, t- Tuesday night, God help me. Um, at the beginning of the meeting, they have this new thing now to try and embarrass Neil Perry. If somebody submits a, an email, they now read it out loud. Like in the old days, it would just go into the record. Somebody sends an email about something, it goes into the record, all the councils can read it. But now that they're still doing the meetings via Zoom, um, they're reading some of them out loud. And of course, guys like Steve Saber get like some of the political people to uh, make sure that they mention me every chance they get. To mention me, to mention this show, and it's, you shouldn't go on Tom Duggan's show because he's mean, he's a meanie, and, and he, he says bad things, and it's not professional, and why do you go on that show? It's so horrible. It hurts your credibility. But here's what happened a little while later. Richard, do you miss this? Oh, I think he yes. does. Yeah, you're right. Um, a little while later, the mayor, during the mayor's minutes, or during the mayor's communication, uh, excoriated Council Finicaro for saying something in the Eagle Tribune, which he said was completely not, not true. I don't have the clip with me today because I have Richard. Um, but it doesn't really matter what the, what the issue is about because what I want to talk about is the fact that when he was done, 
saying that what the Tribune printed was wrong, as he said on this show last week, and went off on the Tribune, um, which, by the way, nobody's ever said at a city council meeting that the Valley Patriot got something wrong. As much as they hate me, and they don't like me personally, they've never once been able to say at a meeting, by the way, the Valley Patriot got this important fact wrong, because it hasn't happened yet. It's, it's bound to, because I'm not perfect. I'm bound to get something wrong. And I'm sure they will celebrate and talk about it for nine hours at a Methuen City Council meeting, because yeah. it's actually the Tom Duggan meetings now. It's not even the city council. <laughs> like, it, all they do is they talk about me in these veiled ways. Don't go on that blogger's show. Apparently, if you publish a newspaper or a writer, have authored books, published books, been in movies, been in music videos, and have your own podcast, you're a blogger. I guess that's how it all boils down, I guess. <laughs> um, so one of, the, one of them was the mayor shouldn't come on the show. A few of them was the mayor shouldn't come on the show. It was so horrible. Then later in the meeting when the mayor was complaining about Jessica Finicaro in the Eagle Tribune, he was excoriated by another city councilor saying, this isn't the forum for that. You shouldn't be talking about those kind of things at these meetings. This is a city council meeting. And you shouldn't be talking these political things at these city. You have your own forums to do that. And it hit me. And I don't know if it hit Neil at the same time, but it hit me when that happened. They're really trying to silence this guy. Hmm. They don't want him to speak at meetings. They don't want him on this show. They do everything they possibly can to try and stop him from coming on this show. Mike Samad, Jim McCarty, and Steve Saber, on multiple occasions, have tried to pressure, threaten, harass, harangue, blackmail, anything that they can to get Neil Perry to stop doing this show. They think if they can drive a wedge between me and Mayor Perry and he stops doing this show, they know he has one less vehicle to get his voice out. And the Methuen Minutes thing that he does, it's good, but it's not politics. It's just, here's what's going on in the city. It's like a very professional DPW put in new pipes. It cost this amount of money. We got CARES money for this. We did that. The police chief you know, retired. It's that kind of stuff. It's not the political stuff. So when he comes on here... We talk somewhat, somewhat. We talk about all the happy stuff too, but we, but we also talk the political stuff. And they're trying really hard to get him to not come here. And for a while, I thought it was because they hate me, and they do hate me. But turn out that's not the reason why they don't want him here. They don't want him here because he's coming up for re-election this year, and they're trying to, they're trying to turn off all the spigots of uh, all the avenues that he has to get his word out to the people. So uh, I hope, I hope. Mayor Perry paid attention to that. I hope when Councilor Ziegler said to him, you should not be talking about this at a city council meeting. I actually think it's perfectly appropriate to talk about at a city council meeting if a city councilor says something in the press that turns out not to be true. If a member of the city council who's trying to work with the mayor, the, all the councils are trying to work with the mayor, goes on to the public and says something that's untrue, the mayor should be able to correct that and address that at a city council Meaning, but they're not going to let him do that. In fact, there are many times when he has to beg to speak because they're talking about an issue and they've got it wrong. And after they're done talking for an hour, he'll say, well, can I speak? No, no, you can't speak. And then someone like um, Councilor Desogli will have to cede some of his time to the mayor to let him say what he wants to say. And then he'll come out and say, well, wh everything you guys just said is wrong because that's not how it happened. And we could have saved an hour of my time and the time of the people watching at home had they just let him speak at the beginning of the issue, but they don't. 
So let's review. They don't want him speaking about anything at the city council meetings. They don't want him coming on this show. And it won't be long if he does, if he, if he can't do it at the meetings and he stops coming here, it won't be long before they start harassing and haranguing the people at MCTV3 to stop him from doing his Methuen mayor minutes there. Because these people are never happy. They're never happy. When a, when, whenever you cede to a bully, whenever a bully's trying to force you to do something you don't want to do, Whenever you give in to them, they just look for the next thing to bully you on. So if he stops coming here and he stops doing it at the council meeting, they'll just go after some. It's just like they wanted. They did not want Jane Adina Tyler to be his aide. They wanted him to fire her. They didn't want him to hire her. And had he given in to that, it would have been, well, now we don't like your secretary. And would have been, well, now we don't like your, your, your city clerk. Now we don't like. And they would have just kept going because that's what bullies do. So some free advice to the mayor, although he never listens to anything that I say, ever. Right? In <laughs> fact, I actually stopped giving him advice because it almost seems like the advice that I give him, he purposely now goes, does the opposite. But some free advice to the mayor. If you don't give in to these people, don't stop doing the show. Don't, and, and again, I could fill the time. This, it doesn't hurt me if the mayor doesn't come in. I, I could have the mayor of Methuen in. I could have police chiefs from, from Lawrence come in. I could, there's lots of people that come on the show. And I know Steve Sable likes to spread this narrative that the mayor is the only one that does his show. You know, you're giving him credibility. Let's review who's been on the show just in the last year, okay? The CEO of the Mass Lottery, the president of the Massachusetts, of the uh, Merrimack Valley Chamber of Commerce, state representative, state senator Diana DeZaglio, state representative uh, Christina Minacucci, state representative Linda Campbell, state representative uh, Lenny Mera, um, Joel Ferretra, Methuen City Council, Methuen City Council, uh, Nick DiZaglio. I could go on. I could go on. And today I've got an even better guest. Um, so I'm going to try not to rant too much. Uh, usually it's a 15 minute rant. I'm going to try and cut it down. Cut to, down to, well, we're at 13 yeah. now. So, well, we don't count the song though. The song's three minutes. So, um, so they had the meeting and it looked like they weren't going to have, um, the votes to appoint the VSO or the assistant city clerk, city solicitor. And then somehow, and I don't know how Neil did this, and maybe he's right about something that I've been giving him a hard time about. Somehow, like in the middle of the meeting, Jim McCarty spoke up. And I was thinking he's definitely the no, right? Because he's one of the people that had people writing letters. So I think he's definitely a no. Sabre's definitely a no, and probably Samard. Samard actually admitted during the meeting, I, I came into this meeting, I was going to vote no. But after listening to the mayor and listening to what's going on here and, and getting the new information, I'm, I'm changing my vote. I'm going to vote yes. So, uh, Mayor, I don't know how you did it. Whatever it is that you did, keep doing it. It's obviously not anything I told you to do because he obviously doesn't do anything that I tell him. Um, and none of the advice that I give him he ever follows, ever, um, which is frustrating on my end. But now I know what to do. Now I just I tell him the opposite of what I think he should do. <laughs> Now I, now I tell him, you know what you should do? You should be Steve Saber's best friend. You should go out with him for dinner. You should invite him to your house at Christmas time. You guys should go out. Yeah, you should get, your wife and his wife should double, you know, go to Tomo's <laughs> for dinner. No, that's, that's what they, that's my new advice now to Neil Perry because he doesn't do any, anytime I advise him to, to, for some reason, the people near him, he doesn't listen to anything. But if his enemies say something, etched in stone. Right? If Steve Saber says something to him, it's etched in stone. It had to have happened. If I say something or some of the other people around him on his side say something, never listens, ever. So that's my free advice anyway for what it's worth. Um, they did vote for both the VSO. They voted yes on the VSO and the assistant city solicitor. I actually think um, the assistant city solicitor was a bad move 
They're bringing back Peter McQuillan. I think it's Peter. Don't, don't, don't kill me if I get the first name wrong. Who's the former solicitor in Methuen, like, I don't know, five, six years ago, he left. They actually fired him. They, they, they didn't renew his contract. And uh, there were a lot of shenanigans that went on during that, uh, including Mr. McQuillan texting que- embarrassing questions to city councilors during meetings when they were interviewing his replacements. Um, and we actually covered that. So if you go to the Valley Patriot website, you can find that. Oh, by the way, I like to zoom in, by the way. I, I noticed uh, maybe three or four shows ago, you zoomed in on something when we were talking, and I actually kind of like that. I want to thank our sponsors, McLennan Real Estate, AFC Urgent Care, uh, Marsade and Sun Constructions, EIS Investigations and Gun Training. If you want to, if you want to get your gun license, you have to go for a class. That's the place to go. Uh, Borelli's Deli, where I'm going after this. You, you ever go to Borelli's Deli, Rich? In, uh, on Merrimack Street, with no one? It uh, apparently wasn't memorable enough for me to say yes, Okay, but I right, wouldn't well, doubt it. Well, we'll, we'll have, we don't have to take Richard there, because then he'll never leave, because now I'm there like three days a week. Uh, who else do we have? Uh, Clear Path for Veterans New England. We're going to have Jason in here maybe next week. Uh, and Andover Optical. We appreciate Andover Optical coming in with us. Um, and if you really enjoy the show, if you like what we do, uh, please uh, get your next set of glasses or your eye exam at Andover Optical, and please tell them that you appreciate them sponsoring the show, because I promise you, promise you, they're hearing from the haters. I guarantee you, the minute they started advertising with us, Jim Bacotti had all his buddies calling them, saying, he's a worm. What are you advertising with him for? He's a racist. He's a white supremacist. Oh, boy. Speaking of white supremacy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I need like 20 Richards in the audience when I do this show every week to just sit here and laugh at all of, at all of what I say. Um, that might be the best helping. transition in podcast history. You like that? Because <laughs> I have it right here, white supremacy on my list. Um, it seems as though the new, the new president, Joe Biden, and of course CNN, his handlers at CNN and the mainstream news, so-called news media, think that white supremacy is the biggest issue facing the United States. White sup- the biggest problem in America is white supremacy. We are going to talk about that with Richard. Um, but I, 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 I just don't see it. Like, I didn't see white supremacists burning down police stations in Minneapolis. I, didn't, I saw Black Lives Matter activists burning down police stations, calling for the death of police officers, pigs in a blanket, frying like bacon. None of those things were being done by white supremacists. The storming of the Capitol is now being blamed on white supremacists. They weren't white supremacists. They were Trump supporters. And that, by the way, doesn't make them white supremacists. I know white supremacists. I do. I know a couple of white supremacists. I got to be honest with you. They want nothing to do with either of those two groups. They don't want anything to do with the Trump people. They don't want anything to do with Black Lives Matter. The biggest problem that we have in this country when it comes to violence is organized groups that are fanatical on all, all sides. I would say both sides, but there's more than two. It's not just the left and the right. It's the crazies that have no political ideology at all, too. The Republicans have sold us out, and the Democrats have sold us out, and there's a whole lot of people in this country that have figured that out. And now they want, like me, want nothing to do with either party. I was a Republican for years and years and years, and I believed everything that they said about fiscal responsibility. I liked libertarianism. I liked the idea of smaller government. It just turns out at the end of the day, it's all a lie. All of it. It's all a lie. There's a, there's a ruling elite ruling class. It's not Democrats versus Republicans. It's the elite ruling class versus those people who want to represent the average person. And unfortunately, the elite ruling class is now controlling everything. They're controlling the news, Hollywood, the House, the Senate, the White House, the courts very shortly, because he's got four years. 
And I think the more they distract the public by talking about white supremacy being the biggest issue faced, the biggest threat to America, China is way more of a threat to America than white supremacy. People burning down police stations and calling for the overthrow of our government is far more dangerous to this country than white supremacy. Now, let me also say that doesn't mean white supremacy is not a threat. Of course it is. Of course it's a threat. And I shouldn't have to say that out loud. I would think most people watching would know that, but I know I'll get hate mail after would say, you made excuses for white supremacists. No, I didn't do that at all. They are a threat. But they're like the Boy Scouts compared to Black Lives Matter and Antifa. By the way, Antifa is still rioting every single day. And they have been for the last eight months, I think, since, since George Floyd got killed. And they're still rioting in Portland, Oregon, every single day. If you follow Andy No, it's, I think it's NGO or NGO on Facebook. Um, he's an independent um, journalist who goes out to all these riots and just does live feeds. And every night, if you go to Andy No's page, like somewhere around like after Tucker, like around 9, 30, 10 o'clock, you will see every single night they're burning down buildings. They're storming people's neighborhoods. And the mainstream media doesn't even cover it. And by the way, Antifa, they're not white supremacists. At least they say they're not white supremacists. Maybe at the end of the day, they are. We'll ask Richard when, when he's here. Uh, what else do we have? Joe Biden. Joe Biden was inaugurated yesterday. Um, loved the fawning coverage. Loved the fawning coverage. I, I, I put on CNN for about 15 minutes. I got all I needed to know. It was the skies opened up and Jesus descended down onto the Capitol and then he transformed himself. And look, it was Joe Biden. And now all is right with the world. And then we heard like 15-minute screeds about the love story of Joe and Joe Biden. Imagine if one-third of that was said about Donald Trump during his inauguration. Like even a third of it. No, it was white supremacist KKK member Donald Trump was inaugurated today as he was kicking puppies and stealing money from the poor box at church. That's how they reported it. So... Um, I waited to see what he was going to do. His very first executive order was to kill the Keystone Pipeline. Great way to show unity. By the way, gas prices are going to start going up. Start filling up your car, right? Start filling it like when you don't don't go halfway. Start filling it all the way because prices are going to start going up. This is the lowest price you're going to get for a while because all of a sudden they're talking about killing permits for the Keystone Pipeline. They're talking about killing fracking, even though they said they weren't going to do that, um, and they proved it yesterday. Just remember who told you first. All right. Um, we had a couple of other local things, but I think I ranted a little too long. With me today, Richard Lawrence is a former Lawrence city councilor. Uh, he represented, don't tell me, don't tell me. He represented Tower Hill, right? Um, I'm going to, and again, I didn't look this up. I'm going to guess. You were, pro, you were elected in 1992? Do I have that right? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so it was around then. He was elected as a district city councilor in Lawrence. We didn't get along all that well when he first ran. Because there was this guy, he was running for city council, and I was young and, and way more stupid than I am now. Somewhat arrogant. I was very arrogant. You think I'm arrogant now? By the way, folks, this is the kinder, gentler Tom Duggan. You should have known me in my 20s and 30s. <laughs> and Richard will attest to that. Yes, I will. Um, and I watched this guy, and he's running it, and he's talking about unity, and he's talking about integration, and all these like happy 60s things that we heard from the civil rights movement. And I'm like, 
who the hell is this guy? And why is he waiting for city council if he wants to talk about like civil rights and unity? And, and you know, at the time, Lawrence was still minor- majority white. Um, but I think Latinos were probably about 40% maybe of the population okay. back then. They weren't quite a bit. Now it's like 90% Latino. And it's like 10% white. And so I kept, I'm looking at this guy like, who is this 60s throwback guy? So we didn't get along really all that well. We argued a lot. But he was always really respectful. And he taught me an awful lot. In fact, he was one of the first people when I was involved in politics when I was running for school committee that taught me that you, know, you don't have to dislike somebody you disagree with. And many times he'd say to me, Tom, 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 wait, stop. I'm not a bad person because we disagree. And I thought, you know what, he's right. He, he's not a bad person because we disagree. Let's just talk about the disagreement. Let's just get to the meat of what we don't agree on. We turned out to be really good friends by the end of all of that. And at the end, I was the one saying, Richard Lawrence, what do you mean you're not running for re-election? you got to run now. Now we're friends. I can help you. He's like, no, I want no part of this foolishness. And he just laughed. So I had, we'd been talking for a while. Um, over the years, just once in a while, we'd touch base. I hadn't heard from him in years. And um, I don't know if he called me or if we ran into each other. But uh, we had a conversation about his book. And he'd just written a book called Light Bright, Damn Near White. And I was fascinated by this concept because whenever you talk or you hear people talking about racism, it's always one way. It's always white people are bad and black people or people of darker skin are victims. And I started reading through his book. I actually, I've actually read it twice. I, actually, I started reading through his book and I was delighted that there was somebody who was talking about racism from a real person perspective, not from an abstract statistical perspective. You know, people like Camilla Harris, who's been, who, who's just had everything given to her her whole life. You know, some of these, some of these people claim to be civil rights leaders who didn't grow up in a ghetto, who went to Harvard, who are congressmen or senators, or people like Don Lemon on CNN, who had everything handed to them. Andrea Casio Cortez had everything handed to her. They're not the civil rights leaders, and, and when they talk about it, you know that. Because when they talk about it, they have no real personal life experience with it. Reading through this book, and you should get it, it's called Light Bright, Damn Near White. It is stories and reflections of a multiracial black man's battle with racism in America. And I thought, geez, you know, we had Martin Luther King's birthday this week. This would be perfect for Richard to come in. And, and I, I love the fact that you talked about how you could walk freely, so to speak, among white people who kind of considered you white because you're a lighter-skinned black man. Yep. But among blacks, you were not really quite as accepted because you were a lighter-skinned black man. And this fascinates me. So I'm not going to talk now for the rest of the show because I want to hear what you have to say about all this. Well, I first of all, I have to say um, there isn't much we agree on um, except that it is a privilege to live in a democracy where you really do have the right to express your opinion and you have the right to be respected. And um, there are no greater pieces of a decent country than those two pieces, the freedom to speak and the freedom and the right to be respected. Um, I, I, I did uh, sit on the city council for a while. And, and in Lawrence, it was pretty clear to me, um, and you may have forgotten this, but um, the city council had little to do with running business in Lawrence. Uh, the mayor had uh, substantially all the power in the city. 
Um, so I decided to run for mayor. I, I found out I had fewer friends than I thought. <laughs> you always do um, when you run for office. <laughs> and it's always the people who say you should run. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That are holding signs for someone else on election day. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Yeah, so I, 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 um, it was in 98, that year I do remember. Okay. And I went off to uh, uh, sort of repair the wounds. Um, and spend some time closer to my family. Um, I had an older son, who, by the way, is a podcaster. No yeah, kidding. Yeah, in uh, in uh, San Diego. So we moved out to San Diego, and um, I worked for twenty years there on affordable housing. And one of the realities um, here and there is that the market, uh, unfortunately, controls housing prices. And that then means that if you, as a matter of fact, can control the supply of housing on the market, you then have the ability to increase the price. And somehow, Tom, we've got to create a system that says to it, uh, to us, um, there, there's got to be a way that everybody in the in this in this country can find a house that does not absorb so much of his or her income that they can't take care of the other responsibilities that they as family members have. And having to choose between paying rent and getting medicine for a kid is, is, is no decision anybody in this country ought to have to make. We have the capacity to deal with that. Mm -hmm. We're not dealing with it. And I have a suspicion that that... Um, Angel, you saw fall out of heaven yesterday. Um, <laughs> it's more likely to get you there than the man who walked quietly away and jumped in his helicopter off to Florida. I know there's two things that I really like about the fact that Joe Biden was elected. There's two things. One, Jen Psaki is now, again, the press secretary. <laughs> and you guys know how I feel about redheads. I've been in, yes, I've been in love yes, with Jen Psaki yes. since she worked for oh, Obama. She was. The only, and, and I watch CNN all day in my office because it keeps my blood pressure up. It keeps me you know, sure. Keep, uh, and she's a, a, a frequent contributor up until she just got this new job. And it was like the highlight of my day when they said, okay, when we come back, Jen Psaki will be joining us. And I'd be like, oh, you know, I was going to go make something to eat. Now I'm waiting. I'm going to sit right? there. The other the reason why I'm really happy about Joe Biden getting elected, and I'm not happy that he got elected, but there's always, you know, there's always good and bad, right? Uh, the good thing is, the other good thing about him getting elected is now we're actually going to get a $2,000 check. Yeah, whereas the Republicans in the Senate were blocking that because they were pretending that they were being fiscally conservative. That, that to me, is abominable. I do not understand how anybody in their right mind in this day and age, seeing what folks across the country, 400,000 folks have died of this stinking disease, right. and families are, 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 are isolated. You know, they, they can't visit each other. And... How many millions of folks lost jobs and, you know, the, the unemployment rates going sky high? It's just ridiculous, you know, not to provide some kind, some base, uh, income base that we can count on mm -hmm. as, uh, as citizens. And I'm conservative as they come. Right? Yeah, I left yeah, the Republican Party, but that's not because I'm not conservative. I left the Republican Party because they're frauds. Yep. And they sit there and they pretend that they're for fiscal conservatism and they say, no, 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 we can only give you 600 We can't give you $2,000. 
uh, for COVID relief because we have to worry about tomorrow's bills, you know. Tomorrow's grandchildren shouldn't be paying these big bills. And then they turn around and they give $10 million to Jordan, and they give $50 million to Egypt, and they give $35 million to some other country, Pakistan, that hates us. And I think, wait a minute, some of that money should have gone to the American taxpayers who vote for you and pay your salary, and yet you would rather give money to other countries and then shaft the American taxpayer. And, and again, this is like reason 5,421 why I left the Republican Party. They're a bunch of frauds. Well, to, to, to the extent that we have failed as a country to allocate the resources we have to address the greatest needs that we as a nation face, then we, they all are frauds. Mm. Um, you know, the, this, this isn't a, a, a country that can't afford to see to it that everybody has a decent house. Right. Um, yeah, if you get more money and you want to go have two houses, well, go have two houses. Right. But everybody ought to have a decent house. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to own it. They didn't rent it. There's nothing wrong with that. But they ought to have a decent place they can count on and at an expense that makes it possible for them to live with dignity. Right, but the government, the government gets in the way. The government the, gets in the way. The government's not helping. They're making it worse. The government makes it worse. Section 8, makes, Section 8 makes it worse. The way Section 8 makes it worse is the government subsidizes the difference between what the tenant can pay and what the landlord wants to get. Right. So, who as a landlord isn't going to try to get as much as they can get? Right. Um, thereby, again, pushing the price for housing through the ceiling. Well, it was no different in uh, in San Diego. It was very, very disappointing. Um, you know, San Diego has never been designated as a uh, as a center of liberalism. It's a very heavily uh, military town, retirement uh, community, and there were. Hundreds of us really going before the city council saying we cannot continue to see folks taking multifamily buildings and converting them to condos when we don't have enough rental units for folks in the middle and lower class. Mm -hmm. Didn't, didn't, didn't make any attention. They declared a state of emergency due to a severe shortage of affordable housing and then proceeded to do nothing. Right. Well, it's like the homeless issue, right? Um, yes. You know, we, we, we work with the homeless on a regular basis, and we go to Dan Rivera, who was the mayor of Lawrence at the time. He, he's since left. Yes. And asked for help. And the answer we got was no. And not only did he say no, but we were doing this, a TMF was doing this, a group of kids in Lawrence who, who volunteered to feed the homeless. Every Wednesday night, they were going to the Buckley Garage on Common Street because it's an overhead. So if it's snowing, it's going to be cold because you're outside, but you're yeah. not going to be snowed on, rained on. And every Wednesday, they were setting up tables and places like Harrow's Pies that donate like the, the meal for the night. And we'd have 100 homeless people would show up in Lawrence and we would just feed them. Because while city council is having meetings about meetings about how we can get to the root of the systemic problems and all this abstract bullcrap, the guy's hungry now. Give him a sandwich. Yep. So the kids in Lawrence, and I take no credit for this whatsoever, but the kids in Lawrence who formed this group called TMF decided that we're not going to wait for government to get this done. Good for them. Let's just go out and do it. So they did, and Dan Rivera threw them out. Threw them out of the garage. Well, I'll tell you what the, the, the thing that you and I, I think, will always agree on is that if democracy is to survive, 
if we are, it isn't a matter of survive, it's to become real. Um, it's going to be because people like you, as sick and tired as I get of hearing your complaints about things I think are right, um, need to keep complaining. That, that is, democracy will die to the degree that the people sleep. You know, we got to keep folks awake. We got to keep them on their feet. We got to keep them moving. So I'm going moving with Black Lives Matter. You may not go. I'm going moving with Black Lives Matter. They have raised the issue of police brutality to a level that has resulted in legislation across the country that has redefined the definition of what policing is. And I know policing... Do you think that's a good thing? I kind of don't think that's a good thing. I do think it's a good thing. Okay. I do think it's a good thing. The point being that even in Washington, D.C., this last event... The behavior that the folks in Black Lives Matter were provided when they um, really picketed, they didn't picket, I guess just surrounded the, the Capitol, and the, the Capitol Police's response to them was far more vicious than the response was to the folks who came in support of Donald Trump. I agree with you, but I don't think it was because of race. I think the difference was because... Prior to their marches in Washington, they had burned down police stations, shot at police officers, called for the overthrow, and, and rioted. And up until the time that the Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, they had never done that. One is so a, I think the, re the response was based on expectation more than it was on race. Yes, and those expectations, unfortunately, are a reflection of racial reality in the country. We expect blacks who march to be disruptive. Now, the fact was, in the case of Black Lives Movement, they did not, as a matter of fact, have as part of their crew the folks who created the most significant part of the damage that was done on the fringes, the stuff that you've referred to. You know, they disowned that. And it's... <clears throat> It's an unbelievable, uh, you know, I went to a Black Lives Matter rally in Santee, California. Next time go live so I can put it on my page. That'll be fun. In May. And uh, I got so excited, actually. I, I said um, th that I went to Selma with my three kids. Well, I have four kids and they all went to Selma. Um, and but I was very excited about it. And the reason I was excited about it is because, one, it was young. These are young people. It was interracial. And it was energetic. Maybe a couple of those things don't necessarily come to the core of the keeping democracy alive or, or creating the spirit for the completion of the work that we've started on democracy in this country. But that young people are out there, you know, when I just think of the college age folks I went to college with, you, you could hardly get them out of bed, you know, and, and it's it, the too, they, too much, too much was available to them that they didn't have to fight for and work for, mm -hmm. you know, um, does it bother you that Black Lives Matter is calling for the Abolition of civil rights 
the abolition of the nuclear family. They said it on their website. I mean, it's not like I'm not demonizing. That's what they said their goals were. It seems as though the far left really doesn't want civil rights, but they do everything they do in the name of civil rights, as evidenced by all of this white privilege stuff, attacking white people, dividing us among race. And the fact that you and I can be friends must really piss them off. I bet you every liberal right now is, is, that's watching is furious that you're even here. You're wrong about that. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that a good part of the civil rights movement has combined support from uh, the Jewish community, from Catholics, from Protestants, from um, young, from old, from white, and black. Um, and the end result is that you and I can dislike what each other says, but we can live together. Right. That part is absolutely and in emblazoned on the on the chests of folks who are marching these these days as Black Lives Matter. But it seems like most of them don't believe what they say. <clears throat> it seems like most of them say they want civil rights. They want uh, what I want is a colorblind society. I believe in Martin Luther King. I was raised in a household in a middle-income household in Lawrence, a white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I was raised by my parents to revere Martin Luther King, that we should be colorblind. That, and, I, and, I, and I do it today. Like I, have, I, have, I had somebody ask me one day, well, how many minorities do you have working for you? And I said, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about it. Because it had never dawned on me. I had one black girl that was doing sales at the time. Most of my salespeople were women. Most of my drivers at the time were women. Um, so I called them back and I gave them a number and it was like 90% of the people that were working for me were some kind of minority, depending on how you work it out. And then I asked them, why does that matter? Because prior to you asking me that question, I'd never even thought of it. It never even dawned on me. Well, and one of the results of people not thinking about it is that then in the employment uh, opportunities in this country, we discovered we were seeing no uh, inclusion of blacks. Mm -hmm. And folks would say, well, we hired the most qualified person we can find and we're colorblind. Um, well, there comes a point at which colorblind turns to prejudice. How? how? Because if you it seems don't... Seems like a leap to go from you, one to the other. Well, I'll see if I can help you cross the path here. It, it, that's, why know, I, that's why I love this guy. I love having him here because we all learn something on both sides. You know, it's it's... One thing to say, I'm colorblind. And it's another thing then for that colorblindness to go away when you're operating a business and you say, holy cow, this is a this is a substantially black community, but I don't have any black customers. And I don't have any black employees or I don't have any Latino customers or any Latino employees. If that's the end result of colorblindness, Tom, we can't afford it. But I don't think it is. I think... I, I'm, I'm, I, I agree that the civil rights, a lot of the civil rights legislation that went through in the 60s and 70s, I, I, think they were, I think they were poorly worded and I think they're being abused. But I think at the time we needed that. We needed more integration because coming out of the Civil War, there was still no integration. But I look at the result of all of this now. At the end of 30, 40 years, 50 years of the civil rights legislation that came out of the Lyndon Johnson administration, and blacks are more segregated now than they've ever been, 
right? You, 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 you go to any community, blacks are living in all black neighborhoods, whites are living in all white neighborhoods. Um, you look at the upward mobility of blacks, it's way worse now than it was way back when. There's got to be another solution other than what the government has done. I think the government, once again, has just gotten in the way. One of the things um, I regret on occasion is that um, I'm not a scholar. Um, you know, I, I, I use um, books and research to, to, um, to motivate me, but I don't remember very much of it. Um, Welcome to my world. <laughs> it's, it's tough out there, I'll tell you. And, and I simply disagree with you. I don't think that's true. I think there's substantially greater number of blacks now who are living in suburbia than was the case previously. Um, in particular, I'm, I'm, but I but don't poor, know but the. Poor, but poor blacks, poor Latinos, poor people of dark colored skin are mostly living in ghettos. And, if you, if, and that's an economic issue. That's an economic issue. And until we find a way to create the jobs that then enable folks to earn. And there comes a point where this is still a capitalist country. And if you haven't got money, you're not going to the suburbs. doesn't make any difference what color you are. Mm -hmm. And to the degree that blacks have been held to very low-paying jobs, Latinos too, you know, they then have been delayed receiving the same opportunity I agree to, with that. to move into a, a better house and a better, and a better place. I want you to talk about your book in, in a bit. Um, we had a conversation, kind of, when you had your talk at the church in Andover, was it two summers ago, three yeah. summers ago, yeah. or whatever. Something like that. Yeah. Um, some of the people there, they, of course, they were all very very white, very Andover-y, very liberally yes. type people who aren't living in the real world. Um, and they were all very angry. They were all very, there was a lot of hatred in that room, I noticed, uh, especially any time the name Trump came up. So one of the ladies got yes. up and asked a question about Trump, and the whole place bristled, Trump, yeah. Trump, he's a racist. And I got up and I asked what I thought was a brilliant question that should have been explored a little bit more, but we didn't have a lot of time, so I want to do it here. Okay. When I was growing up, I remember, I'm not going to use any names, when I was growing up, I remember a new kid moved into the neighborhood, and we had like five or six kids that always, we were all best friends, and we all just kind of, we had our own little clique. Sure. And this kid started like hanging out with us a little bit. And one of the kids that hung out with us, it was like the very beginning of Puerto Ricans moving into Lawrence. And one of the kids that we hung out with was Puerto Rican. But you couldn't really tell he was Puerto Rican because a lot of Puerto Ricans have, like you, very light skin. Mm -hmm. So this new kid that moved into the neighborhood that we'd been hanging around with for a few weeks started saying racial things. And all of the rest of us were horrified by what he said. But we were kids. We didn't really understand the politics of it, but we knew that it was wrong. And we also felt bad for the one kid that was with us that he didn't know was actually Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. And we grabbed this kid and we pulled him aside and said, look, if, you, if, you, if, if this is the way you're going to talk, if this was the way you raised, we don't want you hanging out with us. Mm -hmm. If you want to come play ball with us next week, cut using the N-word, cut saying these things about all these Puerto Ricans moving and destroying the city. And you can come play with us because we felt bad for him. We thought his parents obviously didn't raise him right. But I don't ever remember us being angry or hateful toward him. Even our Puerto Rican friend that hung out with us was never really angry or hateful toward him. We all kind of pitied him. And I wonder how we went from that to, if you don't agree with me, you're a racist, a homophobe, a white supremacist, a xenophobe. Don't talk to me. You're a bad person. You can't be on Facebook. You can't be on Twitter. You can't get a job. You can't get insurance. I wonder how we made that leap because I think the way we dealt with it in the 70s was a lot more constructive because I have to tell you, that kid who 
who we chastised on, and actually a lot of times wouldn't let him play because he would slip and he would say stuff, and we go, that's it, you're out. He actually turned out to be a really good guy. He actually ended up marrying someone who was Dominican. And we actually was chatting about this a couple of years ago. We, we ran into each other, and we were like, remember, remember? He's like, yeah, you know, when you're a kid, you just do stupid things. You say stupid things, and you're ignorant. You don't know. And I thought, yeah, most racists are ignorant. They don't know. They're going by what they were told or what they heard or what they thought. Shouldn't we be embracing these people that we think are racists rather than attacking them and insulting them? Shouldn't we be embracing them and trying to change their mind and, and trying to get them to understand that what you, what you believe is, is not morally, morally, first it's not moral, but it's not productive. One of the things that has recently come to light is that there is a place for whites in this struggle for racial equality to take the lead. I commend you and your young friends for what they did. And I can tell you that there are very few kids in the entire country that had friends who were good enough friends to be able to tell them that is no way to talk about another human being. And, you know, if there were millions of folks saying that, we'd be on our way. But there aren't millions of friends saying that. I sat in the living room with my roommate during college and waiting for his father to come down. He was up reading a book and he came down and he finally said, well, uh, I, I'm just so happy to, to, to be here, I, I, but I had to finish this book. It proved beyond the shadow of doubt that apes are superior to Negroes. He said that in my presence. He said that. Did in he the, know you were black no, at the time? No, he did not yeah. know I was black. Which is why people need to read the book. And, it, and, and his son didn't say anything. Nobody said anything. So what I'm telling you is the experience that you had as a kid, I am very happy to hear about. It is exceptional. And if it were not exceptional, if it were the norm, we wouldn't be having this these marches these days. But we I wouldn't. But I think my point is that the approach today is to <clears throat> respond with hatred and anger and ostracize and conflict. And I wonder, maybe, maybe what I experienced is not what a lot of other people experience, but I, it just seems to me that like, if you know someone who's ignorant, don't you want to enlighten them? Don't you want... Don't you want them to get it? It depends. And it depends on what they've been doing. You've been running. If you've been running with a Puerto Rican who was beating you every day because he, he he caught you someplace where your friends weren't around to support you and beat you every single day, you wouldn't have treated them him the way you treated them in in this case. Now, I'm saying th there is unfortunately a history that is enormously long and ugly, and it was successful enough so that I, growing up as a black man, never had any doubt I was black, decided, you know, I need to prove to folks that I am as good as any other person on the face of the earth. And what that meant was, sister used to comb my hair and straighten it, um, you know, so that I would not have that, uh, yeah, I would not have nappy hair anymore. You know, and what blacks there was on the market, there were skin lighteners that, that were that sold fab fabulously. You know, 
I essentially tell him was disliking or hating myself in order to try to impress you. And there is no future in that, Mm -hmm. you know, and that is part of what you're seeing as anger. Now folks who have suddenly seen the light and are beginning to say, I have a right to speak out. I, I may not be as, as polite or as calm and, or as intelligent as you'd like me to be, but I have a right to speak. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's anger. You know, I, I think that that's a, that's a relief, you know, for, from folks who have held in so long their feelings because they didn't dare, you know, and if you don't want to talk about this, but if police, no, talk, listen, if, an open if, forum. if police, uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to talk about That's it. okay. Do it. Yeah. I'm going to talk about it. If a police officer puts his neck, his knee on a, somebody's neck, his knee mm-hmm. on somebody's neck for 12 seconds. And you go to a rally at Black Lives Matter and some at one point they say we're going to now have time where uh, 12 seconds, 12.8 seconds or something where we remember what happened to brother Lloyd. That 12 seconds is longer than you could imagine. And it reinforces the reality of what went on there. Mm -hmm. And it reinforces the sense that police are supposed to contain you. They're supposed to bring you to a place where you can get a trial, where a judge and a jury can listen to your case and decide you did it or you didn't do it. Right. But they don't hand out sentences on the street. I agree with particularly that. fatalities. What happened with George Floyd was horrible. I think what I had a problem with was that it was immediately made a racial incident when there was literally no no evidence. And the that reason it was it's made racial, racist. the reason how many times has that happened? All the time to whites. It happens all the time. I def- listen, fi- listen, find it, me the cases. It happens. Find it, me the cases. It happens all the time. Bad police officers, and I know because I expose them in my paper I on a regular you, basis. Yes, okay. Bad police officers are bad police officers, and if that guy who was kneeling on George Floyd's neck, the neck wasn't fired, and that was never on TV, and he was allowed to go do his job. The next night he'd have his neck, he'd have his knee on a white person's neck, and the night after that he'd have his knee on a Puerto Rican guy's neck because he's a bad cop. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't follow the procedures. He didn't follow his training. He was a bad cop. And you know as well as I do that bad cops have some protection from their brothers. Absolutely, sometimes. And that's true. It is not sometimes. Well, because it nobody- is a brotherhood that remains silent. In the face of incredible cruelty. And it isn't sometimes. I'm going to have to disagree with you on that. Go right ahead and disagree. From from personal experience, because what I see is nobody hates a bad cop more than good cops. And I've seen even just in Lawrence and in a couple of other communities where, uh, what was this guy, Bill Green, that got fired, Dan Rivera fired him. It was other cops that turned him in. It was other cops that put the cuffs on him. It was other cops that testified in court against him. And it wasn't members of the public that were filing, you know, complaints. It was other cops. And I see that now, maybe that it hasn't always been that way. Maybe 20 years ago, it wasn't that way, or 30 years ago. But I see a lot of good cops who 
listen, I, and I have got friends of mine, and I won't say what community, but I have a friend in one community who hates working two nights, two of his four nights a week. They work four on, three off, four on, two off. Um, two of his four nights that he works, he works with a cop that he tells me is, is just a bad cop. And I'm afraid that I'm going to call for backup one day, and that's the guy that's going to be backing me up. And that cop has not taken the privilege that he has to speak to his commander and say, that guy's a bad cop. Mm -hmm. That's the part that has to be addressed. Well, he called me so I could write a story about it so we could expose it and we're working, well, working that's out. A, that, that's a step. In and, the it right isn't, and it isn't a surrounding community. Um, I don't want to diminish in any of my opinions, your experience or what you've said, <laughs> because I, because I truly believe you've got a very unique experience with your book, light, bright, damn near white. Um, and you, and I introduced you as a legend and I want to tell four minutes left in the show. We can go over right, Ben, yep. a little bit. Um, you met Martin Luther King. Sure. You marched with Martin Luther King. In fact, there's a picture in the book, which is worth the price of admission alone of buying the book, of you, and this is amazing because it was 1966, I think, mm -hmm. doing a selfie in 1966 with Martin Luther King. You're holding up a camera. Is that you holding the camera up? Oh, that's not you. No, All right. no. Okay. But you're in the picture. I'm in the picture. There was a photographer. With Martin Luther King. And that was it. Was that, was that at Selma? No. That was in Chicago. Chicago. Which, by the way... Uh, Dr. King, after being in Chicago and going through open housing marches and getting the treatment that he I read got, that. you know, thought it was worse, thought it was worse, worse was than the South. Worse yeah. Than the South. Yeah. You know, so um, I'm not I'm I'm not saying honestly that things are worse than they are. I don't want to say that. Um, I don't want to see whites with a police officer's knee on their neck. I don't want to see anybody with a police officer's knee on their neck, you know, um, and until we call it out and I'm telling you, Tom, you look at the data, I swear to you, you will find that the, I'll just take a leap that a hundred of the folks who have been fatally killed by police officers on duty to one of whites. I, I think I would counter that kind of with the fact that blacks make up black men, young black men between the ages of 18 and 34 make up about 7% of the population and are responsible for 45% of the police officers killed in the line of duty, the murders of police officers, some of whom are also black. Mm -hmm. So I think when we look at statistics, it's easy to draw a conclusion. Now, if we just looked at my statistic, it looks like, you know, Young black men are a problem, right? Young black men are out there gunning down cops, and we got to do something about that. If we just look at your statistic, it looks like, you know, all these all these cops, you know, they're out there putting their knees on the neck of black men um, for no reason, simply because they're black. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And do you agree with that? To the, to the degree that you are willing to look at the truth from my perspective. That's why I have you here. And I am, I am willing to look at the truth from your perspective. We'll finally get a clear picture right. of what the problem is and some suggestions about what we need to do about it. Okay, so what do we do? How do we, how do we get government out of the way? How do we stop the government policies that are making these things worse? And how do we get to a place where we can coexist, not agree on everything, not be hateful toward each other, 
and have blacks and whites worked together as humans, not blacks and whites? How do we get there? I mean, I'm going I'm to take your answer as gospel because you're the preeminent authority on this. And whether we agree or disagree on the small stuff, on the big stuff, I think we're together. We need to find a way that income is spread across black and white, brown lines equitably. When we have that accomplished, we'll find that then black kids who are poor are still killing cops. But we'll find that black kids who are in the middle class are working their butt off to get to, through high school or on to college. And that kids at the top level are going to college and they're becoming professionals and doctors and lawyers and, and real contributors to the, to, uh, the general good. Um, I, I see that being the greatest challenge this country faces. We can't have an, a discussion about capitalism in, or socialism and capitalism in this country. We can't talk about it seriously. We can't have a talk about the fact that the Senate is full of millionaires. Right. I agree. What the Sam Tram is that in a democracy? You know, um, it's, it, we have to look at the economic reality and realize that that economic reality, if it's going to do the job that democracy requires, has got to be structured in a way that makes it reasonably distributive justice in the income earning capacity of everybody in the country. I think part of that, at least from my experience, part of that is that what I see is, I see, and I'm going to call them ghettos for lack of a better word, yes. I see the government has set up these ghettos, these housing projects that look more like prisons. They look more like a prison compound. If you go to the Hancock Projects in Lawrence, it looks like a prison compound, the Essex Project, prison compound. Uh, you, go to, you go to Boston, you'll get any of the housing projects. They look like a prison compound, and I think psychologically that hurts. But also, they then fill that prison compound with all people from the same skin color. All people who are poor, black, or Latino, they stick them into these prison compounds called housing uh, 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 projects, give them welfare, subsidize their housing, and of course you're going to have more crime, but also you've doomed the kids who are coming out of those housing projects, almost all of them, to a life of failure or a life of struggle. What you are um, dodging is what capacity do those families have to find a house independent of the projects that they can live in. You know, that's why I'm, I'm underscoring your question with the answer of economics. We have to look at economics. We have to figure out why in hell it is that when you look at poverty, the, the, the number of blacks who are poor is considerably greater than the number of, name it. Right, any group. Yeah. And, and I think I heard last night on CNN that black immigrants who come to this country do far better, like legions better, than black Americans who were born here. Yep. And there was a big discussion, and I think it was CNN, don't hold me to it, I think it was CNN, they were having a, what I thought was a really interesting discussion, except everybody was white, so it was kind of hard to get like a real perspective, um, as, to, as to why that is. 
that blacks who come from the Congo chasing zebras and living in tents are coming here and doing better than young black kids who were born in Chicago or Boston and lived in a housing project. And, and that, that's fascinating. I mean, somebody should write that book. Well, I, I, I think it has been written. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that when we brought blacks to this country to enslave them, mm -hmm. we took away from them their natural community of language. We broke up their families. We actually trounced on them for hundreds of years. Now, I would reject your use of the word we, but I agree with everything else. Well, I take as much responsibility for what goes on in this country as anybody Yes, yeah, I take no responsibility at all. Well, I do. So, I take, yeah, I take yeah, no I responsibility. I get you. As far as I'm concerned, I'm only responsible for me. Yeah, okay. Um, but finish the thought. Um, young black men in America, and I think that the government is part of the problem. I think racism is part of the problem, but I think <clears throat> the majority of the problem is just that we have... We have government officials who like things the way that they are, profit off of things the way that they are. These housing authorities, you said you mentioned Section 8 housing, which I think has is, is also been, the result has been very racist. Yes. And yet the Democrats who push these programs run every year, I talk about it on the show a lot, Elizabeth Warren jets into Boston, she takes a limo into Lawrence, she goes over on Union Street. She announces herself for mayor. <clears throat> she drives by five homeless people, because I drove the route. She drove by five homeless people on her way to Union Street to make her announcement for president of the United States, and then drove past, past them again to go back into Boston to get on her jet to go back into D.C., and never once stopped and like, gave the guy a friggin' sandwich. Like, like They come in, and they preach, we're going to help the poor. We're with you. We're for the downtrodden. Vote for me. Then they get on their they get in their limousine, get back in their jet, go back to their to their condo in D.C., and they push these policies that actually end up hurting young Latinos, young blacks, young people of color, people who are poor. And then when people like me come out and say, "Yeah, but you're not doing anything," how come these things that you're pushing are hurting blacks, Latinos, people who are poor? You're a racist. You're a white supremacist. Well, I don't think any individual um, who's who's ever served. In an, in an elective office would uh, have any trouble telling you that what, as an individual, I might want to accomplish in the city of Lawrence and what I, as a member of the city council, can accomplish in the city of Lawrence are two entirely different things. And so while I might start out, I mean, I was in favor of bringing a, a casino to Lawrence so that folks could be employed, so that the economic reality of the city would change. Folks almost had a heart attack. I know. I was with you on that one. Oh, okay. Well, because I play blackjack, so I just I just wanted to not have to drive to New Hampshire. Well, and then then, then we were we're together again at the casino. Um, you know, it's it's so difficult too to be an elected office, an inelected office, because. Hardly once, I cannot remember once, when I had an opportunity to vote, did I enthusiastically vote. I had to... You're always voting against somebody, I not always, for somebody. That's exactly right. right. You know, and I always had to chip it away, chip it away, to, so that what I originally would have liked to see in the measure that I'm now asked to vote on is gone. Right. Um, you voted for Trump, didn't you? It, Come on, you could admit it. 
No. no. Donald, Donald, Donald and I go back a long way. Do you really? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, there's a great picture of you with Martin Luther King. Can you talk about your experience with, with Dr. King? Sure. Because there aren't a lot of people alive that can say that. And I think, look, I think, I think you're a legend. Don't threaten me. All right. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, um, Dr. King came to Chicago to work on affordable housing. Oh, and I should say on the air, and I wish you'd stop smoking. I, I know. I don't. Uh, I only and, hit. I only took one hit to get me through the rest of the show. That that isn't um, that isn't um, because of me personally. I'm thinking about you, you dummy. That that's not good for you. I get it from every woman in my life. Uh, and, and occasionally a man, apparently. <laughs> Today a man. Yes. Okay. Um, Dr. King came to Chicago, as I think you know, to work on open housing, segregated housing. It was true in the city of Chicago that you could go to a certain street, and once you cross that street, you were in. A white neighborhood. And if you cross that street um, after dark, you there might problems. you might come back with a broken arm. You know, it's um, it was a really terribly segregated city. The response he got was incredibly violent. I mean, I can remember, as you know, um, National Guard troops protecting the martyrs, Dr. King and me with their rifles, and with the bayonets on, in place, and facing the counter-demonstrators. You know, so when I see the Capitol uh, event, that, that didn't shock me. I know it shocked lots of people in the country. It didn't shock me, because I... You'd already seen it all. I'd seen it. I, right. I knew that that was there, you know. Um, anyhow... Um, Dr. King was hoping to have an impact on the housing situation in the city. Frankly, he failed. But he was engaged in lots of other issues while he was there. One of them was that the city of, Sandy, uh, of Chicago, trying to build, um, with urban renewal money, a string of parking lots around the business section with new entryways, so, so white shoppers who no longer lived there could drive into the shopping area, do their shopping, and never know they're in a black community. <laughs> it's bizarre. It is bizarre. It's ridiculous. And they took down 400 sound homes in order to do it. And there's another story that's attached with that, but we won't go there. So we tried to stop that urban renewal project. And we boycotted the business district one winter. One Christmas, we're out in the cold with Santa Claus on our on uniforms on, you know, asking folk not to shop at 63rd and Halstead Street, giving them a balloon, helium balloon. And we found most of those balloons in the stores so we could recover them and use them again the next day. But anyway, um, we were not having any, any success. So if we finally talked the clergy into going down to the bank, the, whose, whose president was one of the leaders of the, of the effort on urban renewal, and we were going to withdraw our accounts. And um, the day that the demonstration was scheduled, Dr. King's staff called and said, Dr. King wants to be part of that demonstration today. And he came. And we talked briefly for... 15 minutes or so, 
he joined in the march. So, you know, folks say, um, I went to Chicago and I marched with Dr. King. And I say, hmm, I was in Chicago and Dr. King marched with me. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, and we went to the bank and um, tried to get the president to see us. He wouldn't. The folk, the ministers, these are all ministers, withdrew their accounts. And uh, I was at the end, I had my bank book with me, which had nothing whatsoever in it. Um, and one of Dr. King's staff, Jim, James Orange, said, well, you better, you ought to burn that thing. And so somebody had a match and they set the thing on fire. You can't in the picture really see the flames, but it was on fire. Um, a, pic, a photographer from the Chicago Daily Defender was there and took that picture. And uh, it was good enough to provide me with a copy of it because I didn't get it. I didn't think about having it when I first saw it in the newspaper. Um, and Did you realize what a legend Martin Luther King was when you knew him? Yeah. Or was it like not until like later on when, you know, things started happening? No, I knew he was a legend. I mean, at least he was a legend to me. After Montgomery boycott, you know, he, he was a legend to me. And he was all around the country after that in all kinds of different battles. And, of course, um, before he died, he was in Memphis on, with sanitation workers. And, you know, he, he was everywhere fighting for justice. Um, so he was a legend in my, in my book by then. But I didn't think it was right of me to keep that picture. So um, my son said, well, why isn't it? Uh, and I didn't have a good answer. So right. we went out and we got a copy of the picture. And it's in the book. So if you want to get the book, please do. It's, uh, how much is the book? It's got, it's got to be... It's 10 uh, bucks. 10 bucks. Um, Light, bright, damn near white. If, unless they get it from me, they can get it cheaper. And thank you for signing my copy. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Um, you, you seemed... And I, do we, can we just explore one more thing? Do we have time? Okay. Um, Supposed to be an hour show. We're like fifteen minutes old. We're going to keep going though. Um, at the opening of my show, I talked about white supremacy not being the biggest threat facing America, and I thought I heard you bristle. I did. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to address it. I fear that until this nation faces the reality that was slavery and the legislation that was passed after slavery that called Jim Crow legislation that did not permit a black person to take the oath in office on the same Bible as a white person. And all across the country, legislation was passed forbidding blacks to marry whites. And on and on and on and on, Tom. It just went on and on and on and on. And that was a desire on the part of the slave owners, most of whom were white, um, to preserve their status in the society where they were superior. And there was enormous mountains, mountains of uh, so-called research proving that apes were... Uh, superior to Negroes and the like. You know, um, white supremacy poisoned a good part of the white population. And it poisoned a good part of the black population, too, because we began to feel like 
holy cow, they must be right. There must be something wrong with me. Maybe what, we what, are inferior. What, what can I do? Yeah, right. how can I fix this? Right. Um, we are only able to have a community if, as a matter of fact, you really think that you're as good as I am, but no better. And so to the degree that anybody feels supreme because they have more money, which is really a, a problem in this society. Folks who have money think they're something special. Mm -hmm. Well, I say the hell you are. See, that's, you know? where I, that's where I go to. I don't think there is such thing as white privilege. I think there's elitism privilege and there's certainly financial privilege. Because if you're rich, uh, just watch Law and Order on any given night. If they're going to arrest a guy who's got no, uh, you know, no parents and he's got no money in the bank, you know, he gets treated like crap. But if somebody gets arrested who's you know, cousins with the governor or you know, the nephew of Bill Gates, suddenly they, he gets treated very differently. I'm just going to wrap this up by reading what I wrote to you when I signed your book. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Tom, our friendship defies the typical thought of what is possible. Your continued leadership is priceless. Thank you, Richard Lawrence. Thank, and I was very touched by that. Thank you. I appreciate it. I was wondering if you could just go back and answer my, like my original question. Do you think white supremacy is the biggest threat? I don't think it's the biggest threat anymore. Um, I think that um, folks are recognizing that it has been a problem. And there are folks on both sides, all sides you know, working to erase whatever the barriers are that enabled whites to think they were superior and blacks to think they were inferior. You know, there's enormous energy around that. So I don't think that's the biggest problem we have anymore. I think that the biggest problem the black community has is, is getting over hating ourselves, getting over thinking we are inferior, getting over thinking we've got to do something special in order to earn the job. Mm -hmm. Listen, some great advice. Uh, we, we, we agree on some stuff. We didn't agree on some stuff, but I really hope uh, that the people at home listening on Podbean or Spreaker or any of the other podcast platforms that we're on, or those who are watching on Facebook, YouTube, wherever, uh, learned something today. I certainly did. Uh, Richard Lawrence, my guest, I'm so happy to have him here. He's the author of Light, Bright, Damn Near White, Stories and Reflections of a Multiracial Black Man's Battles with Racism in America. It's a very easy read. It's $10. Mm -hmm. You can get it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all yeah, those places. Yeah. Now, I, did I give you a copy of my book? Because I, I have a copy... I don't think I have a copy left in the in the office, but I will get you one if I haven't given you a copy of my book. No, you didn't. Okay. Um, so I, I would I will, I will make sure we get you heroes in our midst. Um, and by the way, in our book, we, what we did was we took all of the... Uh, every month we've, we honor a hero on the front page of the paper. Yes, I see that. And we compiled all 13, 14 years of those. And one of them, I don't know if you knew him, was a Tuskegee Airman, uh, uh, Luther McElwain. McElwain. Absolutely, I know him. He's a cousin, actually. Um, for my, that, anyone my, who is interested, um, you can find the link to the Amazon page where the book is either in the Facebook chat, in the description on your podcast service of choice or in I YouTube. See I see it. Thank you for posting that. That's and, awesome. And let me say this. Um, oh shoot. I'm 84 and I just forgot. That's okay. I do that at least once a show. Don't I, Ben? <laughs> I'm in the middle of a thought and I go, damn, I'm getting old. What was I going to say? <laughs> I love uh, No, I get it. Good. The, 
your headline, and not this month, the month before, Lawrence hits the lottery, mm-hmm. that's our winner. Good you like jo- that? Good job. Yeah. Well, it's amazing because whenever I there's a story that someone gets shot in Lawrence and I report on it, I get 500 people from Lawrence come on and go, what all you, you do is badmouth the city. All you do is try to make us look bad. And I'm like, do you even read my paper? Like, have you even seen the headlines <laughs> of my paper? So when I had a chance to make that the headline, I purposely made that the that headline. That's a good one. That's a good because one. Because I'm so tired of hearing how all I do is trash Lawrence. Like, they, they, uh, people in Lawrence seem to have, like, battered women's syndrome. They really think that, like, everyone's out to get them. Like, if you say one thing about Lawrence that happens to even be true but negative, it's you're just picking on us. You're picking on us because we're brown. See, you're picking on us because we're poor. If I had been able to get you to stop just, just a minute or two sooner, you wouldn't have all the f- feminine liberals on your tail because they, they are now for, for what you just said. Okay. So, What um, was the bad part of what I said? Cause, um, well, I can't recover it either, but it was... <laughs> it, he just knows it was bad. It was bad. Don't say that again. Okay. All right. Richard Lawrence, I love. Will you come back? Would you? I mean, I'd love to sure. do another. I, we could literally sit here and do another hour and talk about race I'm sure. issues in America because I think having the two different perspectives, be people at home learn stuff, but also I learn stuff. And as most of you who watch this show or listen to the show know, I don't do this show for you. I do this show for me. I do it because I have fun, and it's also like my catharsis. It's my therapy for the week. It allows me to get stuff off my chest. Um, uh, if you would like to buy the book, the link is in the comment section. We will also post it. And I'd love to have you back, Richard. We sure, come back. we'll work it out. Sure. All right, great. Thank you. Uh, Richard Lawrence, thanks. Let's wrap this up. I want to thank my um, my sponsors. Let's try and get to those if we can find them. I know I had them here somewhere. McLennan Real Estate. We love Sam and uh, Janet and Matt over at uh, McLennan Real Estate. AFC Urgent Care. I think we're going to have... Um, I think we're going to have Lisa from AFC Urgent Care on again. I think I have a free week next week, so I'm going to do like a hodgepodge of different stuff. Marsan and Son Construction. Ronnie Marsan, former Methuen City Council. He's a really good guy. Uh, if you need roofing, you need something put on, you need a new, a new addition, or you just need something fixed in your house, give Marsan and Son Construction. EIS Investigations. If you need your gun permit, you need to go and take a class, right? It's mandatory. So go to EIS and take your class at EIS and then apply for your gun permit. Uh, Borelli's Deli, the best beef. And I didn't know this, by the way, until Neil was here last week, that uh, Borelli's Deli isn't just for, like, deli meats. They actually sell, like, steak and chicken and stuff. So I used to go to Thwaites to get my steaks and chickens, chicken, and then go to Borelli's Deli to get my deli meats. Now, I'm, I'm just going to get everything over at Borelli's, I think, at this point. Uh, Clear Path for Veteran New England. Uh, we're going to have them on next week. And Andover Optical, please... Go to Endeavor Optical and thank them for sponsoring the show. Ben, my fine, fine producer, thank you so much for being here. I want to thank Dave Garafalo uh, from Two Guys Smoke Shop for allowing us to do this. I, I swore, Richard, when I left radio, I would never go back. I hate radio <laughs> so much. Um, I was just so tired of, of the whole corporate radio nonsense and the censorship and what you can and can't do. And when I sat down with Dave to do this show, we have one agreement here. And that is that no one gets to tell me what I can and can't talk about on my show. Good stuff. And as long as we have that agreement, this podcast will continue. Good stuff. So I want to thank uh, thank everybody. Thank all of our sponsors. We will see you next week on the Paying Attention Podcast. Please share this out because I'm in Facebook jail and I won't be able to post it on my page. Uh, we will do some watch parties later on. And pick up uh, your Valley Patriot. They are everywhere. Go home. Telling you.
The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.